Last week, we launched into our new sermon series that's no ordinary collection of messages. This about is about us looking into the past, the present, and the future of the church here at Peachtree. And last week, we kicked off by talking about mission, and you heard me talk about how I don't really care if we have a mission statement. What I really care about is if we have a missional way of life. But it's really hard to have a mission without articulating your mission, having a clear, compelling, catalytic, contextual understanding of what you believe your identity is, answering that question, why do you exist, or what are we really here for? What are we ultimately doing? And so we talked about that last week in joining Christ daily in the restoration of all things, that we believe that God is doing a new creation kind of restoration work in the world and that we get to partner with him in this moment, in our moment in history and time. And one of the things that you heard me describing with this analogy is you talked about, we talked about the difference between making bricks, building walls, and constructing cathedrals, that you could be doing the very same activity, but be doing it with a very different mission in mind. And we talked about how we wanted to be in that building of cathedral kind of mentality. But you know what's interesting, if you travel to Europe, you'll notice that not all cathedrals look alike, that you might think that this cathedral is radically different from its origin in Spain, a more modern cathedral than the other cathedral that we put up on the screen. In other words, you can have a very similar mission. You could even have the same mission, but still go about it in a very different way. The way that you do your mission is often referred to as your values, your motives, your priority. It's what animates the way that you do what you do. One of the examples that we talk about in our family with this is our oldest daughter, Danica. She has been through a process where she has clarified her top values. And one of her top values is quality. And this does not mean that we're raising a snob for an oldest daughter. What it means is that she cares that you care about what you're doing. She cares about being in an environment where people actually really take great care in what they do. So she prefers to eat at Chick-fil-A over KFC because they have very similar missions But the values of those two organizations means that they produce fast food in very different ways. Let's close in prayer and I'll go out to lunch right now. (laughs) Do you see how values are so important? Well, we have a lot of values here at Peachtree, but what we have done as your leaders on your behalf is try to articulate our kind of top three distinctive values. We're going to put them up on the screen here, and they are unexpected togetherness, gentle reverence, and disruptive compassion. Will you say those with me? Unexpected togetherness, gentle reverence, and disruptive compassion. Unexpected togetherness because the gospel brings everyone to the table. Gentle reverence because the gospel requires both grace and truth. And disruptive compassion because the gospel changes us all for good. These are some of the particular ways that Peachtree gets motivated and animated in order to participate in the great restoration of what God is doing in this city 
and around the world. So for the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about how are these three values, where do they come from biblically, how do we live them out in our time. And so today we're going to be talking about unexpected togetherness. And so if you will, reach for a Bible and turn with me to the tiny little book of Ruth. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth. Ruth is a small little book that takes place during the time of the Judges. It is the time when everybody was doing what was right in their own mind, a time in a period of great upheaval and violence and back and forth. And then there is this beautiful little love story in the midst of it. We're going to be looking at Ruth chapter 1, but before we start reading it, I want to share with you something that is one of the great treasure keepsakes in my office. This little booklet that I have right here that's kind of worn and tattered and has kind of pages sticking out of it, and some of those pages are in the book, are typed, and there's handwritten notes in the middle of it. This book is sacred to me because it belonged to my dad's father, my grandfather, who was a pastor, a professor, a prison chaplain. And this is a book that he would often put his notes to preach in. This is a booklet that he would use oftentimes when he was gonna perform at a wedding. And by the time this book was passed down to me, the pages that are in this book are actually the pages of the wedding ceremony that my grandfather used to perform the marriage for my mom and dad. And so I've got the words that he said, a couple of little notes in the column. I wanna show you a picture of my mom and dad when they got married. I love the fact that my dad is rocking it with the white dinner jacket here. And uh, my parents will be celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary this summer. And I treasure this little gift that I have that talks through the importance of their marriage. And as you know, from every kind of centerpiece of a wedding is the vow. And the vow that is written in here are the words, I, Gail, take you, Richard, and the presence of God and these witnesses that wherever you will go, there I will go. Wherever you stay, there will I stay. Your people will be my people, and your God shall be my God. Those are fantastic words for a wedding. But what's interesting is the words don't come to us in the midst of a love story between a husband and a wife. When we talk about unexpected togetherness, and when I think of my parents having been together for 50 years, that's a form of unexpected togetherness in today's day and age when relationships are seen as disposable. But the kind of unexpected togetherness that the Bible really talks about, and what we're talking about when we talk about it here as a church, is even more radical and more surprising than 50 years of marriage. And so let's start reading in the first verse. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of the two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. 
Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, not to be confused with Oprah, and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. This love story begins in the midst of tragedy. The first tragedy is that there is in Bethlehem, which in Hebrew means the house of bread, a place of plenty, a place of fruitfulness, There is a famine in that place. And so a new young family finds that they have to relocate in order to survive. And we might think that they had to move from Atlanta to Birmingham or something along those lines, but this is a far different kind of commute. I wanna show you a map of where they went. It wasn't all of that far away, but it couldn't have been culturally any different. This is the country of Moab. It is the modern, uh, the modern portion of this would be in Jordan. And what you need to know about the Moabites is that the history of the Moabites, according to the Hebrews, was that Lot in uh, Genesis, as in Abraham and Lot, Lot decided to have a child with one of his children. And that is how the Moabites came about. In fact, the word Moab in Hebrew means, who's your daddy? (laughs) I kid you not, that's what it means. And so you have these characters. Elimelech means, my God is king. Naomi means pleasant. And yet in the midst of the tragedy, We also see some of the view of maybe the health of their sons. Their sons' names mean, Malon and Kilion mean weak and frail. Let's summarize by putting all of these up here on the screen. So Bethlehem is house of bread. Moab means who's your daddy. Elimelech means my God is king. Naomi means pleasant. The sons mean weak and frail. So let's summarize this. There is a famine in the house of bread, and so they have to move to a place called who's your daddy. The people pleasant and my God is king have sons called weak and frail. And in that place, tragedy strikes even further where the sons die. And this is where the story picks up in verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness. Have you shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me? May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Let's pause right there for a moment. This is the most natural thing that would have been done. They should go back and start their lives over. Seven times she will tell them to return, seven being the number of perfection, a completion. And then she kissed them and said goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had another husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you. 
because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. The word for to cling there is the same Hebrew word where it says in the book of Genesis that a man will leave his mother and father and cling to his wife with the same promise, with the same tenacity, with the same commitment of a husband to a wife, a wife to a husband in marriage. This foreign daughter-in-law will cling to her mother-in-law, even though her mother-in-law can do nothing for her. A remarkable portrait of unexpected togetherness. There's a management uh, kind of expert and leader who decided to conduct a little social experiment. He would ask men this question. So put this image on the screen to help to illustrate this. Your mother, your wife, and your daughter are all on a boat and the boat is sinking and you can only save one of them. Whom will you save? I thought about having you turn and all the men in the room answering that question, but it could get ugly in here real quick, couldn't it? So let me just share with you the data as opposed to putting anybody's marriages and lives in risk here in the sanctuary. 60% of American males said that they would rescue their daughter. 40% said that they would rescue their wife and 0% said that they would rescue their mother. This is not a survey that we pull out for Mother's Day weekend. (laughs) But here's where this gets interesting. This same management leader decided to conduct the same survey in the country of Saudi Arabia and Syria. And you got a radically different answer. In those Middle Eastern countries, 100% of men said that they would rescue their mother. Radical different set of assumptions. A radically different set of understanding of what family was like. And in a similar kind of way, Ruth clings to her mother-in-law even though it doesn't make any sense. And then Ruth says these words. Naomi tries one more time. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Pause right there for a moment. That means, in other words, even after Naomi is dead, she will not forsake this vow of going where she is going. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. In this moment, all that Naomi does is talk 
try to convince. And then there's a moment of silence where Naomi doesn't say anything in the story for a long time because there's a kind of love that won't let go. There's a kind of love that can't be argued with. There's a kind of love that won't give up. And when you experience that kind of love for yourself, there's not much that can be said. It's overwhelming. Let's consider the nature of the vow of what Ruth is making to Naomi here. She says, I will follow you, I will dwell with you, I will share with you, I will worship with you, I will die with you, and if I don't, may God curse me. Can you think of any more serious of a promise to make? One biblical scholar helps us to put into the context by saying it this way. She says, Ruth stands alone. She possesses nothing. No God has called her. No deity has promised her blessing. No human being has come to her aid. She lives and chooses without a support group. She knows that the fruit of her decision may well be the emptiness of rejection, indeed of death. Consequently, not even Abraham's leap of faith surpasses this decision of Ruth's. And there is more. Not only has Ruth broken with family, country, and faith, but she also has reversed another allegiance. A young woman has committed herself to the life of an old woman rather than to the search for a husband. One female has chosen another female in a world where life depends upon men. There is no more radical decision in all of the memories of Israel. This, my friends, is what we call unexpected togetherness. When the good news of God's steadfast love holds a community together, when everything says it's time to depart. This is what God has in mind for his people. We've seen glimpses of it even throughout Peachtree's history. Uh, Vicki had shared with me earlier this week this image here I want to put up on the screen. This is an image on the left in a little blurred fashion is the profile of beloved Frank Harrington, pastor of this church. Next to him is <clears throat> Coretta Scott King, Jimmy Carter, former president, and Billy Graham, who went to be with the Lord this week. And I think if you look in the very background carefully there, it's either Nancy Ray or Donna Ray, but I can't tell which. <laughs> Unexpected togetherness. Maybe they were a part of different political parties. Maybe they had different theological understandings or practices, different cultural backgrounds, races, ages, and yet God called them together in mission. More recently, this is a picture that I received this morning from Jay in India. 
This is our own Caroline Young, who is in India right now with our mission team. She's addressing a group of girls in India who have been rescued from human trafficking. She's there to reassure them of God's steadfast love. What would compel somebody to go all the way across the country with words of encouragement and to say that we're with you even in the midst of their pain and their loss. We believe that God is restoring their lives and that God used unexpected togetherness in previous generations of this church and that in order for us to participate in God's restoration act, there is no way, there is no way to do it unless unlikely people are brought together. One of the best books that I read uh, last summer was by Ben Sass, who's the senator. He's written a book called The Vanishing American Adult. And in that book, one of the things that he talks about is a term called generational ghettos, that one of the greatest forms of separation that's happening in our society right now is in form of age segregation. When you look at the long arc of civil rights and race relations in this country. There are still struggles. There is still a lot of work to be done. But when you look at where we were a couple hundred years ago, even in the 60s to where we are today, the long arc trajectory is that is trending in the right direction. You know what is trending in the wrong direction? The way that the generations relate to one another. That more and more you are segregated by your birthday than ever before. I met one time with the middle school principal of the school that was right next door to the church where I previously served, and I said, except for money, if there was one thing that you could do to magically change the lives of your students, what would it be? He didn't even have to think about it. He said, I would have them have more adult interaction in their lives. He goes, Rich, these kids are starved for adult attention. They're lucky if they get 15 minutes of an adult's attention in a day. More and more, all of us being kind of put into little groups, little niches further apart from one another based on our preferences, based on our age. And we are finding ourselves into generational ghettos. And this is even true in the church. More and more churches, not like a peach tree. You don't understand how unusual peach tree is. 10% under the age of 10, 10% over the age of uh, over 70, that are, are, our median age is 37. Our largest demographic of age are seven-year-olds in the church. You don't understand how unusual this is. Churches are usually kind of predominantly senior adults, or as we call them, grand adults, or they're predominantly young people, or they're predominantly a church for baby boomers. It's a lot easier to do a church that way. But guess what? Even though it's more expensive, even though it's messier, I believe the devil loves nothing more than for a church to remove the youthful passion from its congregation or its experienced wisdom. And we are planting our flag in the ground here at Peachtree and saying we will be an all-generations community. And yes, it is a form of unexpected togetherness in our moment in time. And it's what's required. 
When I think of unexpected togetherness, one of the primary images that comes to mind is from a movie, The Lord of the Rings, where there's this unlikely fellowship of an elf, a dwarf, a man, and uh, a couple of hobbits together, which is the Middle Earth equivalent of a priest, a rabbi, and a pastor walk into a bar. (laughs) And there's a point at which of the first book or the end of the first movie where the fellowship seems to be breaking apart. And this is what happens. So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All you have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to you. Samwise Gamgee. And I don't mean to. I don't mean to. Oh, Sam. going to Mordor alone. I'm going the mission to destroy the ring. And his friend says, of course you are, and I'm going with you. Ruth, I told you about all the other names in the story, except for one. Ruth means faithful friend in Hebrew. At the root of unexpected togetherness, And the only way to be able to accomplish the mission that God has set before us is for us to become a little community here in Buckhead 
and around Atlanta of faithful friends. And so like that little hobbit, I'm gonna ask you to make a promise. And this promise is not for a wedding, but it's just as serious of a vow. It's a promise to the unexpected togetherness of the gospel in this place. And so I'm gonna ask you to close out this message by standing, standing up, go ahead and rise to your feet at this time. And I'm gonna put these words up on the screen and let's say them together to God and to one another in this community. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me and be it ever so severely even if death separates you and me. Let's pray. God, thank you for the eternal nature of your steadfast love and your promises and your kindness that holds us together. And we know, Lord, that only the faithful friendship of your good news could pull together such an unlikely community that this is from different backgrounds, different places, different ages, and yet you've pulled us together for such a time as this. Lord, as you pulled Ruth and Naomi together for a sacred calling, will you pull us together in this church to be for you the kind of people filled with the faithful friendship that wipes away all bitterness and all tragedy with the true nature of your love. And we pray all of these things with great anticipation in the strong name of Jesus the Christ and all of God's people said, amen.